a wonderful TMC seminar series this fall with a number of uh, really distinguished guests that you can find listed on our website. And it's my pleasure to introduce the speaker for our first seminar of the fall, uh, uh, my close friend and colleague here at Duke Divinity School and in the TMC initiative, Brett McCarty. Uh, Brett is Assistant Research Professor of Theological Ethics, uh, Associate Director of the Theology, Medicine, and Culture Initiative, and also Assistant Professor in Population Health Sciences at Duke University School of Medicine. He did his uh, bachelor's degree at Furman University, his PhD at Duke Divinity School, uh, and he uh, is someone who is, has worked uh, for quite a while now on thinking about Christian engagement, specifically with substance use issues and with uh, faith community uh, clinical and institutional partnerships, and we're going to hear more about that today. His publications include essays in the Journal of Medicine and Philosophy, the Journal of the Society of Christian Ethics, the compilation Spirituality and Religion Within the Practice of Medicine. His research and teaching interests occur at the intersection of bioethics, political theology, public health, and theological anthropology. And his current research uh, projects focus on competing conceptions of agency within the modern hospital, religious responses to the opioid crisis, and historical and contemporary connections between Christian bioethics and political theology. Uh, so with no further introduction needed, I want to introduce uh, Dr. McCarty to present to us on the topic, Churches Promoting Recovery, Faith-Based Responses to Substance Use Issues. Thank you so much, Warren. It's a joy to be with uh, you all um, today and then here at the start of this year. I uh, want to thank especially um, C.J. Lynch, Viper Nicholson, you Warren, Rachel Gallagher, Heather Plunk, and so many others who are making this event pos possible. Uh, and I'm, I'm just profoundly grateful for my research partners in Southern Appalachia and across North Carolina who, who've taught me what I'm about to say or um, I'm trying to learn how to say. And, and I'm definitely still working on the lessons that they've gifted me. Um, in a moment, I'll begin with their Voices, but first let me describe the means by which we've sought to listen, uh, to discern, and to hear their stories. Uh, uh, this is the methods portion of the talk. I promise it won't take too long, but it's, it's important to acknowledge where, uh, where these sources come from. I had the privilege of leading the Churches Promoting Recovery Project, along with Warren and Rachel and many others. Uh, and in that work, we conducted a needs assessment of, of clergy responding to substance use issues across North Carolina. Um, and out of that, we sought to create a hub of accessible, theologically grounded practical resources and contribute to academic research and scholarly conversation as well. Uh, for that survey, we invited a little over 1,200 North Carolina clergy from across the state, selecting for rural, urban, geographic diversity and markers of opioid use in the counties that we targeted. Um, they received a gift card for completing, and it was a 20-minute survey looking at a variety of factors. Um, including the resources that they desire uh, and their congregants' views on substance use issues. Um, we had 186 responses, mostly Protestant, mostly wealthier and older, um, and uh, predominantly white in their responses. And so then we set out in our second stage to conduct a series of listening sessions. Uh, we had eight of those, um, with uh, particularly attempting to focus on listening to leaders and communities of color, uh, which were not as well represented in our survey. Um, and so uh, we had eight of those, you can see those there, and those took about 90 minutes each. Um, and out of this mixed methods needs assessment and, and in collaboration with an advisory board and some wise par 
partners. We've developed a set of practical resources that we're about to disseminate via website. I'll uh, say a bit more about that at the end of my talk. But um, I also just want to acknowledge first, though, another means by which we've sought to attend to the realities of folks on the ground. And that's an earlier project that's uh, wrapping up now as well, um, funded by the Greenwall Foundation on the uh, particularly around questions of collaboration and religious communities in response to the opioid epidemic. Um, and, uh, and so we spoke with stakeholders from a variety of institutions, um, from the criminal justice sector, social services, healthcare system, religious communities, along with uh, folks who uh, have lived with opiate dependency. Um, and, uh, and in our conversations with them, we have 36 in-depth uh, uh, interviews that, that I conducted and um, really grateful for the work of our colleagues at the Qualcore team and analyzing that work. Um, and much of the uh, narrative accounts that I'll bring to you today are, are drawn from that time on the ground in Southern Appalachia. Um, and uh, I could say more during the Q&A about um, all the specific findings from these two studies. Happy to talk through that. And we're in the process of writing those up. But, but today, I, I want to share some of the things that I've learned from this work with an eye toward an audience of clinicians and clergy in practice and in training, leaders in uh, the healthcare world and in faith communities. Um, with an interest particularly in integrating theological inquiry in the practices of health and healthcare, with a focus on responding faithfully to substance use issues. So with that backdrop in mind, uh, I want to begin with a brief word from Reverend Reggie Longcrier. He's the executive director of Exodus Homes Ministries in Hickory, North Carolina, uh, and his experience of substance use issues and incarceration uh, led him to create a faith-based ministry serving people returning to the community following time in prison and or residential treatment programs. Um, and you can, uh, uh, his memoir um, from, from Disgrace to Dignity, you can, you can find online as well. Um, so uh, for each of these clips that I'll show, I'll need to just give me a brief moment to pull up the right timestamp. Uh, apologies for that in advance. Um, so this is just a brief word from him uh, about some things that I really think we should be attending to. As low boy, if the church doesn't engage the crime rate, will go up. The rate of recidivism will go up because there's nobody at the gate, nobody at the, no keepers at the gate waiting for these men and women to return to our community. They need somebody to hold their hand as they're making those adjustments back into the community. So. This, this emphasis on the need for keepers at the gate to welcome people back, um, to hold their hand, hand as they're making adjustments to the community, it, it points to a, a just deeply pressing and widespread need uh, on the part of folks struggling with substance use issues. And it's really hard to underestimate the scale of these challenges. There's over 100,000 people in the U.S. who died last year from overdoses. Uh, the vast majority of those were related to um, uh, opiates of some form and uh, including the skyrocketing rates of death by fentanyl. And um, that's the highest that number has ever been by far. And, and what I really want to attend to today is how the churches seeking to respond well to these realities may find that they're receiving an invitation themselves to be transformed further into the image of Christ. Sadly, though, uh, many Christian communities today are marked by an inability and, and to be honest, often an unwillingness to see and follow Jesus in the work of walking with folks struggling with substance use issues. Um, and so I'll let uh, two ministers and friends uh, say a bit uh, about that. Um, Reverend David Julin and Reverend Sam Warner, 
they both work with the Faith Fighting Addiction uh, Coalition in Gaston County here in North Carolina, which Reverend Julian leads. Um, and it, Reverend Julian will be the first uh, speaker on this clip. Cramerton is a small town. If we ignore the whole substance abuse problem, we are in danger of putting ourselves in a place that people don't want to hear what we have to say. And if we're not relevant to what's going on in people's lives, then they're fine with walking away from it. I serve a church that has a gorgeous building and it has um, a lot of facilities and they're empty a lot of the time during the day. That's not what Jesus had in mind. And my hope is that we can become more of a place that is welcoming for people who need the communal help that comes. This whole faith fighting addiction is how do I... So this hope expressed by um, uh, Reverend Jewel and Reverend Warner here, um, I think is really, really key for what it means for churches to follow Jesus and in, in, in offering welcome. And I think Reverend Julian is right about the church's relevance. And, and I think it's also true for the world of healthcare as well, which, which often struggles to respond to the biggest, most intractable challenges like substance use issues. Um, and so to echo Reverend Warner, what did Jesus have in mind? What does it uh, mean to be a more welcoming space for folks struggling with substance use issues? This is a question, I think, for both the church and the clinic, for both clergy and clinicians. So I believe there's a, a need here, both for folks struggling with substance use issues, returning from prison, residential treatment facilities, as Reverend Longcrier highlighted, and for churches um, who need to follow Jesus more faithfully, as, as Reverend Julian and Reverend Warner highlighted. So, so begin to answer this question, like, what, what did Jesus have in mind for these communities? I want to shift to some things I've learned through my work in Southern Appalachia, first as a postdoc and then the past few years while I'm faculty here at Duke. And to do so, I'll, I'll begin with the story. So this story was the first time I attended uh, a worship service at a recovery ministry. I'd just driven four hours into Southern Appalachia only missing one turn, which I took to be a real achievement. And I showed up 15 minutes early for a Monday evening worship service that began at seven. I wandered for a while around the otherwise empty church, passing a gleaming sanctuary that I later learned had been renovated recently for nearly $2 million in order to make the sanctuary more accessible for an aging and shrinking congregation. I finally stumbled on a poorly marked stairwell leading down to the basement, which didn't seem to have received many, if any, of those renovation funds, and there I found about 30 people scattered around the room. I didn't realize that they shared a meal before the service, but the friendly women cleaning up a supper of pizza, cookies, and lemonade told me to make myself at home, so I grabbed a styrofoam plate and quickly ate a slice. Meanwhile, two men broke down tables and set up several rows of folding chairs while the worship team finished their sound check. I barely had time to say hello to the associate pastor I'd been in touch with via email before the lights dimmed and the music cranked up. After a few songs and some announcements, a woman led the group in reciting the 12 steps from laminated pages and a worn three-ring binder, with each step followed by a Bible verse. So, for example, step one, we admitted we were powerless over our addictions and compulsive behaviors that our lives had become unmanageable. That step was followed by Romans 7.18. I know that nothing good lives in me, that, that is, in my sinful nature, for I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out, and so on throughout the 
12 steps. Following this recitation and before the sermon and closing song and prayers, someone shared their testimony. And after the service, attendees split up into groups where further testimonies were shared. This central practice of the evening played a, a powerful role throughout faith-based responses to the opioid crisis in the region. Whether at a worship service or a more informational meeting, people in the room would shift in their seats when someone shared their testimony, leaning forward to listen more attentively. How, how are we supposed to attend to this practice? What, what does it mean to bear witness in the basement of the church? What are the implications for faith communities and healthcare organizations? For, for I believe that the lives laid bare there in this testimony, those lives certainly have a claim on our lives and our congregations, claims that we often work fairly hard to ignore, whether we know it or not. Now, there's often a, a very real tension between the weeknight recovery ministries meeting in church basements and fellowship halls and the Sunday morning worship services in the sanctuaries of those same churches. Stigma, class differences, and a whole host of center margin dynamics often keep them separate. When I talked with the associate pastor of the church I just described, he said that some of the more well-intentioned Sunday morning crowd approached some of the leaders in the recovery ministry to see if they might worship together sometime. With a bit of a wry grin, the pastor said that the recovery ministry leaders said, we'd love to worship together. Y'all are welcome any Monday night you'd like. And I take that to mean to press the question of which worshiping community is the central gathering place for meeting and following Jesus. And I've been so impressed and, and struck by some of my research partners who live as if their salvation is bound up with meeting Jesus at a weeknight recovery ministry. And I've seen how this requires a radical reorientation of their time and energy, a reordering of the goods that they've been pursuing throughout their lives, a reinterpretation of who they are and, and who they're called to be. We can see evidence of this in uh, a account from a woman I'll call Laurie, who uh, who's describing what it was like to start a recovery ministry at, at their church following her son Rob's struggles with substance use issues. She said, and you can see this quote, we thought we were going to help addicts, but we found out that we were helping ourselves, that we were finding out that God showed us our defects of character and that he showed us that we're just like uh, an addict. I mean, we have faults and none of us are perfect and we need to accept everybody on their level. And like I said, we all thought we were going to help addicts and we came out with a newer understanding of ourselves. Um, recognizing that, that the language around addicts and addiction and substance use issues and dependency is, is contested and fraud, I, I really do believe that much of what I have to say uh, is just an extension of the heart of what Laurie says here. Um, what, what are some of the means by which a newer understanding of ourselves might come about? Like the Christian life, walking with someone struggling with substance use issues often has its ups and downs. As my research partners often noted, it is a roller coaster. To invoke a more theologically laden register, this support is an accompaniment, something that TMC's own Pfeiffer Nicholson has written about. Through a shared journey over time, the opioid crisis can be revelatory, I believe, for the Christian life as a whole. And to explore this some, I wanna to turn to the story of uh, Drew and Samantha and the practices of accompaniment that their lives uh, were witness to. So Drew, was just in his late 20s, and he had already spent several years in jail for multiple indictments of activities related to his substance use issues. 
He described to me at length the importance of accompaniment in light of his extensive experiences at the devastating intersection of substance use issues and the criminal justice system. He had little social support growing up. He said, my family, my brother and my sister, they're addicted. And the other parts of my family, they, they just really gave up on me some years back. I just have to navigate best I can, end quote. Because of this, Drew could not overestimate the importance of guides coming alongside him to help him find his way through these difficulties. In particular, he described the importance of a woman I'll call Samantha, a retired woman who had met Drew while volunteering at a local daytime center created by the criminal justice system to support people on probation with substance use issues. For Drew, it was Samantha's trust and faith in him that was, quote, probably the only reason, he said, that he was alive and able to talk with me. Uh, Drew said, she's been to all my doctor's appointments. She's went to court with me. Samantha, for her part, said that her journey with Drew has been transformative for her life as well, enabling her to better understand the challenges of the opioid crisis and God's call on her own life. She has learned, however, that she and her family are not able to save Drew. Reflecting on her need to draw boundaries and connect Drew with others for support, she said, quote, he needs way more intensity than we can ever provide, end quote. And Drew noted some, something along these lines as well. He said that Samantha is quick to connect him with others, and he described the process of healing for someone like him. Quote, if people pull together and show somebody that they're really addicted, and really trying to change their life, that they love them and care about them, people pull together. And that's how things get done instead of just one person trying to do it. Samantha reaches out to other people. Next thing you know, everything else starts falling into place. End quote. In their story, I, I take journeying with someone struggling with substance use issues to be revealed as potentially transformative for, for both folks on this road together. Um, though they both acknowledge that the ultimate source of salvation of health is, is beyond them. And I take the story of Drew and Samantha both to illuminate and be illuminated by a story found near the end of Luke's gospel. So in uh, the gospel of Luke chapter 24, readers walk with a, a disciple named Cleopas and his friend a few days after Jesus died, and they're stumbling along this road to Emmaus enveloped in a fog of confusion and trauma. Many of you will be familiar with this famous painting, Caravaggio's Supper at Emmaus, where Jesus was eventually revealed to Cleopas and his friend in the breaking of the bread. But, but first, I want to attend to the journey that gets them to this point. Cleopas and his friend have witnessed the man they believe to be the Messiah of Israel, crucified by the occupying Roman authorities. The legion stationed in Palestine killed the man who drove out legion from the garrison man afflicted with demons. Earlier that day, Cleopas and his friend had heard a mysterious word of new life from women they deemed unreliable. After seeing Jesus crucified, how can they make sense of this news of an empty grave? As they're traveling, Jesus joins with them, though they do not recognize him. His question to them, what are you discussing with each other while you walk along? is the first recorded thing said by Jesus following his resurrection in the Gospel of Luke. For someone who has just conquered the powers of sin and death, this is, I, I take this to be a really remarkably humble and hospitable question. His words to Cleopas and his friends offer a more personal, self-involving, and, and invitational version of what 
Stanley Hauerbaugh's Falling H. Richard Niebuhr and others claims is the fundamental moral question, what is going on? But here, for these two friends, in the face of death, particularly the death of the word made flesh, words are undone. Speech fails to render reality, and so Cleopas and his friend pause in silent, sad grief. This, I think, is the fitting response to Jesus' question. For how can you go on? What words can you offer when you've walked with someone, loved them, placed your hopes in them, and then have your world fall apart in their death? The mourner's deep sadness marks so many who've lost loved ones in the opioid crisis. We can imagine Jesus stopping and standing silent and still with them. Jesus creates room for Cleopas and his friend to begin to try and reword the world. Much like, like Elaine Scarry's description of healthcare and the body in pain, he, quote, repairs the ground for the return of the world itself, end quote. So as the two friends walk together, they attempt to articulate all that happened in Jerusalem. Jesus walks with them and gives them the time and space for their trauma to surface linguistically as they revisit their most painful memories. So far, Jesus has shown how to respond to someone living with trauma walk with them and open up space for them to share their story. But he then does something unexpected. He admonishes them for their unbelief, their inability to understand their story rightly. In walking with these disciples, Jesus does not leave them where he found them. He exhorts them to see that reality is not fundamentally defined by the cycle of failure and death. And Jesus turns to the scriptures to explain their lives, his story, and their world, continuing to walk and talk. And I just want to take a moment to set Jesus' response in contrast to some of the prevalent responses to substance use issues in the opioid crisis. So whereas Jesus offers these disciples a new narrative, both biomedicine and 12-step programs offer responses to substance use issues that can, at, at times, keep people within an old social script. Now, I, I, these are both powerful modes of response. I don't mean to belittle them, but I want to acknowledge something that often isn't articulated about them. So medical anthropologist and psychiatrist Helena Hansen draws attention to the assumptions undergirding the contemporary understandings of addiction as a chronic relapsing brain disease, where, quote, the addicted self is damaged, cannot regulate itself, and therefore cannot protect itself from further harm, end quote. Such a self always will require psychosomatic technologies to adapt to the world as the story of their self in the world is, is taken to be immutable. Likewise, Hansen says, quote, 12-step programs identify addictions as incurable diseases that require sufferers to attend meetings indefinitely for sobriety with a lifelong threat of relapse, end quote. Now, at their best, I do believe that biomedicine and 12-step programs can be a part of powerful modes of accompaniment, of walking with people facing enormously difficult challenges. But both approaches can resist specifying any goal to this journey, lest the seriousness of substance use issues be underplayed. In contrast, Hansen says that for the Pentecostal drug ministries that she studied in Puerto Rico, she says, quote, rather than asserting that addiction is the disease of the individual, ministries see it as a sign of societal disease. The goal is not to adapt to the world, but to create a new one, end quote. Here we begin to see how interpersonal accompaniment can reveal the need for salvation and health on communal and even cosmic levels. 
Later, Cleopas and his friend recognized the role played in their transformation by their conversation and journey with Jesus. Were not our hearts burning within us while he was talking to us on the road, while he was opening the scriptures to us? This is in verse 32. But their eyes were not immediately opened by the Bible study that Jesus himself offered. The word made flesh. Um, and as someone who sometimes teaches Bible studies, they often seem to miss the mark. Uh, this is an encouragement to me. And so while Cleopas and his friend do not yet recognize Jesus, they are eager to break bread with them. And I take it to be a mark of their ongoing healing from the trauma they experienced that rather than standing still and silent, they're now eager for their time and conversation with Jesus to continue on, culminating in table fellowship. And here we finally get on this dusty road to Caravaggio's scene. By walking and talking with them, by humbly giving them space to share their story and then working to set it in light of the narrative of scripture, Jesus has prepared these disciples for communion with himself. And so in the breaking of bread, Jesus was recognized. This story indicates that the transformation of people struggling with substance use issues and those journeying with them takes practices of sharing life together over time. In this story, Jesus displays what it means to walk well with people who have suffered, who have been deeply wounded by death and despair. And in the opioid crisis, this is true both of people who struggled directly with substance use issues and of their loved ones who struggled in supporting and loving them well. For those who are suffering in these ways, what does it mean to walk with them? It means to give them space to tell their story, to tell what they've experienced, and to walk with them through life as they do so. But other times it might mean a word of exhortation, bringing them out of a stuck script of despair so they can be retold a story that has been lost to them, or at least offering the space and creating that space for Jesus to do that work over time. Through it all, and, and this is really crucial, those called to accompany people struggling with substance use issues must find themselves as fellow disciples on the road to Emmaus. Just like their travel companions, just like our travel companions, they're in need of Jesus setting their lives rightly within the story of scripture. They are in need of a word of exhortation to break them out of their own social scripts of sin and death. In this way, the work of accompaniment is a site of salvation and help for people with and without substance use issues. Walking, talking, and breaking bread on the journey together help make possible the creation of Christian community. As biblical scholar Luke Timothy Johnson says about this passage, quote, the scattered fragments that have whirled in different directions are being gathered together in one place with one shared story, which is the Lord has truly risen. Such a vision of accompaniment would transform the lives and practices of people in Christian communities and clinicians in the institutions of healthcare, not to mention the parishioners and patients they're journeying alongside. So what does this mean for clergy and clinicians? For a kind of biblical response to that, I want to turn to uh, Luke chapter 5, which contains a dramatic display of what it means to be brought near to Jesus and accompanying folks struggling with substance use issues. The Pharisees and teachers of the law, these moral and intellectual leaders of Israel, have gathered from every village of Galilee and Judea and from Jerusalem itself to observe Jesus, says there in chapter 5, verse 17. But we see here in this passage that their studied interest becomes an obstacle in the way of 
a paralyzed man's healing. How might religious bodies be barriers to rather than sites of salvation and health? Consider the story of Bill, a musician struggling with substance use issues. He described how he had become part of a church and joined their worship team. But as soon as prisoners discovered that he, quote, had drug issues and then was using replacement meds, Suboxone, he said their attitude got so cold all of a sudden. In a moment, the fellowship dissipated and a congregation that had received him in what he called a loving, brotherly way, that congregation was no longer a community for him. In a variety of ways, then, Christians can help, can keep, can keep people who desire to be with Jesus from communities ostensibly devoted to following him. For those suffering from the isolation that marks substance use issues, this functional excommunication can, can be deadly. And we see here a similar shunning present in the social world of Luke 5, where those who were paralyzed, uh, Joel Green, biblical scholar Joel Green says that they were excluded from full participation in the community. And yet we see in Luke 5 that this paralyzed man and his friends were not deterred. They did not let these barriers, these teachers of the law, keep them from Jesus. Instead, these friends start ripping through the roof to get to him. And through the haze of this disruption, you can kind of imagine the, this dramatic scene, descends a paralyzed man who needs to be with Jesus. His friends will not let any barrier stand in their way. So they disrupt this gathered body of believers. As Justo Gonzalez says about this passage, they make a way where there was not one. The paralytic is placed closer to the center than the teachers and the Pharisees. End quote. When the paralyzed man finishes descending through the dust and rests at the feet of Jesus with his friends looking down from above, Jesus does not say immediately, friend, you are healed. Instead, Luke 5.20 says, when, when he saw their faith, he said, friend, your sins are forgiven you. In this moment, Jesus shifts what could be a focus on an individual's healing to the much wider communal work of salvation. As Joel Green notes in, in his response to their faith, Jesus to their faith, Jesus apparently refers both to the faith of the paralyzed man and, quote, to the faith of those who share and enable his quest for healing by going to extraordinary means to overcome the obstacle embodied in the crowd, end quote. In this remarkable exercise of faith, these four friends themselves are brought near to Jesus. For Christian clinicians, this passage in Luke 5 can better reveal and enable their callings to health care, I believe. Along with considering the connections between bodily care and spiritual transformation, Christian clinicians should take seriously the possibility that they are to welcome the disruptions of people struggling with substance use issues and their friends who are seeking to overcome barriers to accessing care. These disruptions may help healthcare practitioners discover that their work is more about creating the conditions of possibility for healing than it is about performing seemingly miraculous healings in and of themselves. So, for example, these uh, clinicians in, in Buffalo, New York, Darren Capasaro uh, and Monica Farrar, um, they draw from the story of Luke 5 and their work co-directing a, re a recovery ministry there. And they describe a, a four friends model for responding to substance use issues where clinicians are but one group among many, just the, the clinicians, one of the four friends on their model, needed to bring people to Jesus for healing. Their work acknowledges a more expansive account of healing while also emphasizing a chastened collaborative role for clinicians in that work. 
And so it's in hope of enabling such collaborative response to the substance use issues that we've created the practical resources that I mentioned earlier. Uh, we're launching soon this website, churchespromotingrecovery.org. The, the, the link there will take you to an old version where you, you can share your contact info and we'll be in touch when the, the new version is live. Um, and that site uh, is going to contain a host of resources centered around uh, the, the video documentaries that I showed brief clips from those two and there are two others as well. Um, these practical resources are example Bible studies, sermons, tips on how to create a community gathering, um, advice for, for public health practitioners who want to partner. Um, uh, and, and I'm just really excited to, we're just excited as a team to bring that to you all. Um, and so I, I'll, as I begin to wrap up, I want to give a chance for Reverend Michelle Mathis, Executive Director of Olive Branch Ministries, who we profile another one of these case studies, to, to share a word herself with us. Um, so Reverend Mathis was actually recently profiled by uh, best-selling author Beth Macy, who wrote Dope Sick. Some of you may have seen the Hulu series based on that bestseller. Uh, Macy's latest book, Raising Lazarus, centers the story of Reverend Mathis and Olive Branch Ministries as a thread throughout the entire book. So uh, here, here's Reverend Mathis. If the church does not engage people who use drugs where they are, we're going to lose those lives one way or the other. Whether it's a physical loss or a spiritual loss, can we really afford that as people of faith? I think of a Her comment there, can, can we really afford that, to lose people physically or spiritually as a people of faith? just strikes me, especially because, and I don't hear when I add something that I've learned from Reverend Mathis and people like her, I think she was probably too polite on in this documentary to, to say this. Uh, people of faith can't afford losing our own souls at this moment. The church can't afford losing her own soul. So when we go to the church basement, literally or metaphorically, to meet Jesus and discern the call Christ has made on our lives, I hope we go there with humility and joy, fear and trembling, love and anticipation to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. Consider, um, though it's, it's, it's really important to note that this call of Christ plays out over the long and hard work of accompaniment. It's a dusty, long road of walking with folks, hearing their stories, sharing our own, recognizing that the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ is an invitation to a new story. This journey is still a roller coaster of sorts. One only has to look at the first disciples to know that people following Jesus do so imperfectly. But walking with people struggling with substance use issues is an invitation to a newer understanding of ourselves, to quote Laurie again, as she was reflecting on her walk with her son and her work in recovery ministry. So let me close with the words of a leader of a, uh, another recovery ministry, Tina, who described her experience living with substance use issues in a way that, that encapsulates the Christian life. She said, I believe in total healing through Christ. And so I don't believe that the Lord looks at me as an addict. He looks at me as healed, holy. Does that mean I'll never struggle with it again? No. Just like any other Christian who's been saved, who struggles with any kind of sin, you can struggle with something, be healed from it struggle through it again, be healed from it. 
I take that to be uh, quite the word um, for anyone, whether uh, we live with substance use issues or not. Um, I'll close with just a bit of gratitude for uh, many of the folks who have made this work possible. Um, the Church's Promoting Recovery Team, Warren Kinghorn was co-PI, Rachel Meyer, Amazing Work as Project Director, a whole host of folks from the Clergy Health Initiative um, and, uh, and the Orman Center and Duke School of Medicine's uh, Department of Population Health Sciences and the Opioid Collaboratory. Um, I'll highlight uh, CJ Lynch there that you all heard from earlier. Um, deeply grateful for these folks. And then the, the other study that I mentioned, um, I was the co-PI, the PI of Farkerlin, uh, co-directs the Theology of Medicine Culture Initiative along with Warren. And uh, deeply grateful for the Qualtor team and the consultants with us on that project. Um, and just deeply, profoundly grateful for all the research partners in Southern Appalachia and across North Carolina who, um, whose life and wisdom and words and gifts of time and energy uh, have made possible all of this. Um, and then finally, I'd be remiss if I didn't share uh, a lot of gratitude for my family. Um, there you see Micah and my wife Dana and, and our daughter Lila, uh, who um, have uh, sustained me in so many ways and also uh, said goodbye as I travel uh, to Southern Appalachia and come back. I'm, I'm deeply grateful to them. Um, thank you all uh, for, for your time and, and for being present for this. And I'm happy to take uh, any questions, I'll turn to Warren for, for fielding those now. Great. Thank you so much, Brett, for that, uh, for that talk and for sharing all of this with us. Uh, and we want to open it up now to a conversation amongst all of us. We keep these seminars as like reg regular Zoom calls rather than webinars because we, we want this time not just to be writing in questions, but an actual time for conversation. So what, uh, what we invite you to do is to uh, use the raised hand function by going to the bottom of your Zoom screen clicking on reactions and then raise hand. And uh, as you come up with questions, then I'll call on you and would ask you to unmute and to actually ask your questions uh, to Brett and we'll be in conversation with each other. Uh, and um, and uh, let us know if you have any trouble doing that. If you're, if you're unable to uh, use the raise hand function, you can also put a written question in the chat and I'll do my best to try to um, uh, monitor those and then to pose those to Brett. Uh, and I'll start out while you all are, are coming up with questions. Um, so this is a little bit more of a personal question, Brett, but sure. you are trained as a theological ethicist. Your training was largely like book-based, idea-based, like working on yeah. questions of intellectual history and theory. And then you began to do this work that like involved a lot of trips to uh, Southern Appalachia, especially the Tri-Cities area of Tennessee and Virginia, and to listen to a lot of people and to do a lot of interviews. And I guess my question for you is, you've told us about some of these experiences, like showing up at the recovery service in the church basement, but how, how does that affect that you, the way that you think about your scholarship, your writing, your career as a theologian, as a teacher? Like, how has that shaped your way of thinking about yourself as a faculty member at Duke? Hmm. Hmm. Yeah, no, thank you for that. Um, and we, we could uh, we could talk a long time because um, uh, it's been profoundly, um, it's mattered a lot for me uh, and, and in ways that I'm sure I'm failing to fully realize and live into. But but it, uh, um, what, what does it mean for me to bear witness to those bearing witness in the basement of the church? Um, a really 
key question. I, I think that for one, it it means um, for me taking seriously that the um, the work of the Spirit uh, on the ground is not the purview of academic elites alone, and perhaps maybe we have some disadvantages in hearing uh, and discerning and testing the spirits. Uh, and so, what does it mean to to try to listen well, to to work on the ground, um, and through that uh, discern new patterns, uh, both to discern more about the nature of reality itself and the, both the the joys and challenges of it, and to see new patterns for faithful action that that might not have been discerned and articulated before, to to lift up those examples and um, and try to offer them and 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 articulate them in ways that uh, both academic, ecclesial, healthcare leaders might be able to hear and respond to, to me is um, a real joy, but also um, kind of humbling and terrifying as well, because I'm, I'm sitting there in, in the middle doing this translation work, and there are a million ways that I'm sure I'm getting it wrong, and I, I'm very eager for my research partners to set me straight. Um, uh, for me, it's it's provided an opportunity for folks to make claims on my life um, about my time and where I devote my energy and the resources that I've access to. Um, and again, I, there there are a million ways that I'm not doing that rightly, but it's at least um, a, a bit of a pinprick of conscience and uh, in a big R1 university setting that certain standards of excellence are put before you. Um, uh, there's a different vision of of what excellence looks like that that walking with these folks in other in Southern Appalachia have given me. Um, so it's with that kind of gratitude and humility and and a searching for more faithful ways to respond. I guess that I would begin a response, uh, but it's a uh, you know from questions of uh, ethnography meets theology to qualitative research and public health. Like there are all sorts of of ways we could take that conversation, but those are some of the personal ways that I want to respond first. Yeah, thank you. There's a, a question in the chat from David Stevens that I'll read. Um, thank you so much for sharing this incredibly important work. Based on your work with these communities and research, how do you think churches can best reach out and support those struggling with addiction who might identify as atheist of a non-Christian faith or otherwise alienated from the church? I think you touched on how non-Christians can often perceive an air of judgment or false compassion from 12-step programs. Given how addiction can isolate people and erode relationships, I worry that those most at risk of bad outcomes may be those most alienated from church life. Thanks for that question, David. And yeah, yeah. what do you think about? Yeah, no, th thank you. It's a, a hugely important question. I think um, maybe to start kind of self-reflectively, I think um, hearing and articulating the judgment from these folks over and against uh, Christian community's unfaithfulness to offer um, love modeled in the way of Jesus, I think is it's really important to, 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 to hear that word of judgment and to sit before it. Um, it can be really easy to dismiss folks. And this is true, I think, both of um, Christian communities and healthcare systems, because folks struggling with substance use issues are often, uh, you can see clinicians almost running away from those encounters, um, because it can be really difficult to, to accompany someone um, uh, struggling with substance use issues. So 
rather than run away or try to manage and control, what might it mean to, to hear their stories of um, being marginalized and ostracized and not receiving the acceptance needed as revealing some profoundly messed up stuff in both churches and healthcare systems. Um, I, I think that, uh, so in other words, um, like a kind of posture of repentance, I think is the right one for both faith communities and and in a way healthcare systems that are failing to, to be uh, who, who we and they ought, ought to be in response to these stories. Um, I think uh, some of my, some of the research partners that I most appreciate listening to and learning from, um, so struck by their wisdom, uh, are not shy about their commitments to the Christian faith, but they're also not afraid of stepping out in collaborations and work that might feel distinctly non-Christian, secular, in, in spaces that uh, that um, that are far from uh, the church itself. So, what does it mean for uh, a kind of rootedness and commissioning um, by, for Christians to to motivate them to move to spaces uh, of hearing, listening, and following and accompanying? Um, uh, without without having to force someone to conform to our vision of what it means to be a good companion on the way to begin walking with them. I think that uh, there's a lot more to say about that. It's a really good question, but um, but I'd want to start there. Yeah. Um, let me, I'm looking for hands and don't see any right now. So I have another question for you sure. about about this work. Um, so as you, as you know, as, as we all know in healthcare, uh, and this is really Kind of gets in some ways to the to part of what David's question is about. Uh, there's definitely the possibility of using theology or using um, religion to add shame to people who live with substance use issues and to increase stigma. Um, and in the clinical world, I know that the idea that uh, substance use is sin or related to sin is something that uh, is, I think it's fair to say, a pretty disfavored way of speaking because of the concern that it may perpetuate stigma. Yep. Um, and even in a lot of um, uh, like Christian and other religious uh, helping ministries, there's a, a, a deep sense of that that's not an appropriate way to think, to, not an appropriate word to bring in with respect to substance use issues. Um, and in these interviews that this project did, like, help uh, talk about how uh, faith leaders that were uh, interviewed in the project like navigated that that balance between is substance use disease is it illness is it sin and and talk about your own thoughts about that yeah th thank you I, I guess maybe first before hopping into that I should the way you asked that reminded me that some one key for both folks in religious communities and in healthcare systems is the hearing of stories of folks who have either struggled with substance use issues or walked with folks struggling with substance use issues. Um, it's in the sharing of those stories that kind of silence and stigma can be broken open. There are just countless examples of, wait, I never knew that the chair of the deacons at, at our Baptist church, that that his son, like, really? Whoa, well, well, and then somebody turns around, well, actually, you do you know my niece? Like she, um, I mean, the, the sharing of stories can be profoundly transformative and opening up space there. Um, 
so that's that's what I just want to highlight. That's just crucially important um, to to maybe respond to this question about the sin and substance use and stigma. Um, I'll maybe return to the closing word from Tina. I'll put it back up on the um, up on the screen um, where she said, I, "I believe in total healing through Christ." And so I don't believe the Lord looks at me as an addict. Um, does that mean I'll never struggle with it again? No. And here's the key part. Just like any other Christian who's been saved, who struggles with any kind of sin, you can struggle with something, be healed from it, struggle through it again, be healed from it. This, this key attention to um, struggle with substance use issues as a site of solidarity for everyone struggling with um, patterns of death and destruction of, of disorder in their lives. Um, uh, just a key mantra in these recovery ministries is that we're all in recovery from something, um, really some things. Uh, and so um, uh, toxic relationships were really emphasized, uh, patterns of um, uh, eating. And I mean, there, there are all sorts of ways that uh, that issues that are both, you know, physical, emotional, spiritual, tied together, um, become sites of uh, recognizing our inability to live the lives that we'd like to live and um, and our need to accompany one another uh, toward the salvation health that the Lord is calling us to. And it's that kind of accompaniment and solidarity in response to the healing call of Christ that Tina displays here and that I saw uh, in powerful ways that so that sin is not a word of stigma, it's a word of solidarity and, and a, uh, a recognition of our need on all sorts of levels um, yeah. for help. Yeah, great, thank you. Um, we do have a question in the, in the chat and we have probably time for one or, or at most two more questions, but uh, Jonathan Good has uh, said, has asked, in the past religious experience has been one of the best documented ways to bring lasting change in addiction medicine. Recently, the Griffith Lab at Johns Hopkins has indicated success in treating addiction with, uh, with psychedelic psilocybin. With psychedelic psilocybin, uh, patients describe religious-like experiences. Do you see psychedelic therapy as competition to Christian experience? It's a great question. Yeah, thank thank you, Jonathan. Uh, Warren, were you about to say something else? No, go ahead. Yeah. Oh yeah, I mean, I would probably defer to Warren given his work as a psychiatrist in this space. Um, but uh, I. Um, I think Christian experience is, is thoroughly uh, embodied, and so there's uh, no embodied experience that would displace because Christian experience runs through all of our bodily existence. Um, and so how are folks meeting the Lord in this treatment? I, I would want to talk to them and ask them about that, uh, but um, I wouldn't see it as a matter of competition, but rather uh, try to hear the stories of the narratives of the arc of a life and where this moment sits within it and how that uh, opens up um, their sense of possibility and understanding uh, and what are resonances and dissonances with, with um, Christian accounts of, of, of our lives. Um, so, so that would be uh, a kind of invitation to conversation. But, but again, this is, I don't, I don't profess a ton of familiarity with this lab's work. So I'd, I'd love to have further conversation. I'd defer to Warren and others who might know more as well. Great. Uh, I think for our last question, I, I would invite Georgina Keene, if you're able to unmute and, and to ask your question, and then we'll uh, we'll wrap up. Yeah, Georgina, thanks. Thank you. Thanks, Brett and everybody. Yeah. Hey, um, I'm a little bit familiar with Celebrate Recovery um, as a model, 
And I'm wondering if you have any experience with this paradigm or if there are others also in place that you're familiar with and whether you think they're effective or not, or would you propose new models? Um, I mean, I can see how some kind of more organic forms of support and relationship is, is crucial. Um, I know sometimes churches or some organizations look for something that's already developed that they can join. So I'm, I'm curious to hear from you with that. Thank you. Yeah, no, no, thank you. That uh, Celebrate Recovery developed um, uh, John Baker at uh, Saddleback Church, uh, founded by Rick Warren, um, massively influential within evangelical Christian circles in particular. Um, and a lot of the recovery ministries that that I uh, worship in, if, if many of them weren't technically Celebrate Recovery ministries because there's a pretty strict format and formula that and process that you have to follow to be labeled as a Celebrate Recovery service. Um, but they had a lot of inspiration by those materials and, and drew heavily from them. Um, so, so I guess the first and last words that I've seen the power of those on display, and I'm grateful for that. I think I, I tried to highlight this briefly with some of Helena Hansen's work around 12-step and um, biomedical responses. The one, one word of caution would be how, um, and this is maybe for 12-step things more generally, is that you can kind of privatize what's going on. The anonymity is both really important for many cases, but can keep what's happening there in the church basement from spreading out into the community, both into your own social worlds and into the wider community that needs to be transformed in light of those stories and testimonies. Um, so uh, one example, and I'll close with this, is, uh, um, and I mentioned briefly in the talk, the story of the man uh, afflicted with demons in Garcia who, when driven out, these demons named Legion go into this herd of pigs, they go over a cliff, and if you dig into that story, and I really encourage you all to check it out on Mark 5, it's this massive, like, cosmic confrontation that has political and economic ramifications. The Legion of Roman soldiers in the region had a wild boar as their symbol, so the, the, the audience would have known that this was, uh, in some ways, implying confrontation with the occupying forces, of Rome and an economic system, um, 2,000 pigs is a pretty big operation. Um, and, and so how to, uh, how to take seriously these social ramifications of a confrontation, but unfortunately in the Celebrate Recovery Study Bible, which has some lovely parts to it, it's a very internalized account of one person's internal demons and the need for an individual to be saved internally from that with really no attention to that wider context. And so that's that's just a, a site of, of growth, I think, for, for some, some of those approaches that, again, I'm grateful for much of the work that they've done. Great. That's really helpful. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Georgina. Thank you, Brett, for bringing us this, uh, this word today. And thanks for uh, all of you who've attended today. Mm -hmm.